Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Models episode 93. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach. And this week, we've got another very, very special guest, also from Island Top Team, Cal McDonald. Cal, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Welcome to the show. No worries. It's actually something we've wanted to do for a long time. And of course, now that we've got you on the podcast, Cal, we have had all of the Island Top Team black belts on our show. So we have a complete set. As a collector, I find this to be a very big achievement. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no, actually, the, the reason why we've wanted to have you on the show for quite a while is because we wanted to talk about working with kids. Now, Matt and I are relatively new parents. And I mean, as anyone who listens to the podcast knows... You know, we talk, we talk about our daughters and in Matt's case, our son quite often. And we've always wanted to do like specific episodes on parenthood or working with kids. But this is an area that you specifically specialize in. Uh, In addition to, from what I understand, managing the Island Top Team kids classes, you're also heavily involved in helping to kind of create the framework that you guys put up on the BJJconcepts.net website, especially as it comes to pedagogy for kids. So we wanted to have someone on here who's really got a lot of experience on the topic and I couldn't think of anyone better. So thank you very much for attending here. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I am really excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to, uh, it's great to have Cal on the show and, um, you know, I've rolled with Cal numerous times and, uh, he's very good competes on the larger side compared to hobbits like Steve and I, what are you, what are you Cal? Like 200 pounds? I'm about 200 pounds. We'll say 200 today. I might be pushing that a little bit, but we'll leave it at 200. Right on. Yeah. And I know, I know Cal's a really good instructor, uh, instructor and I know, uh, you know, he's apparently he's doing really awesome stuff. Rob always tells me, speaks very highly of, uh, how Cal is handling the kids classes and, uh, this is going to be a great chat, I think. So I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. So Cal, why don't you kick this off? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how this became such a passion for you and how you wound up taking ownership of this program at Island Top Team? Absolutely. So uh, I started training at Island Top Team about seven years ago now. And when I got to a higher blue belt level, I really decided that I wanted to get into teaching. I recognized that It was a huge passion of mine to teach, but I was also super fascinated, as many are, with the system that Rob introduced me to, um, obviously the alignment and concept-based system. So I was talking to Rob, and I essentially said, dude, you know, I'd love to start coaching. And basically, the idea was I wouldn't be coaching until I was essentially a brown belt. So at the time, there was no kids program at Top Team, and realistically, what made me start sort of that endeavor was that I wanted experience coaching. uh, And I recognized there was a hole there. And it was kind of a perfect fit. I was really interested in 
just learning how to learn. That's always been a big fascination of mine. Mm -hmm. And then applying that to teaching. So that's really how the program started. We began with uh, about, I don't know, 10 or so students at the time. And I just sort of started rolling. I wanted to create a program that took the adult concepts or the way we taught, taught the adult class and format that for kids. And it's definitely been a bit of a journey. But now I've got a pretty good system, a pretty solid system that takes into account learning strategies. So from cognitive sciences or educational sciences, I use these strategies along with various BJJ concepts um, and then a bunch of mini games and the, the way we structure class and that kind of thing. So I'd love to just basically break all that down for you and you can take from it whatever you can. I sure will, too, because uh, I'm always teaching kids as well at the school. At least I haven't been since the pandemic started. We've, we're actually starting again next week uh, with kids, but I'm definitely curious to see how you apply Rob's concepts to the kids class, because Rob's told me that he has covered kids class, you know, a rare amount of times when you can't make it. And he says that it's basically like teaching adults, like all the kids have an understanding of basic and even some more advanced mechanics and concepts and principles and things, things that uh, sort of sets our system apart from other other systems where it's just, you know, teaching moves to kids and they just regurgitate moves. It's it's more focused on the the why things work and, and how they work. Absolutely. Yeah, I try to keep it. I, of course, still have to teach techniques and moves, but I try to keep those really simple and very frequently I'm just going over the concepts. So let me start with one learning strategy. And I'm sure you guys have gone over these things before, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening have heard of these these strategies, but I'll just break them down um, just briefly. So the most important strategy is absolutely retrieval. Um, there's a bunch of different names for these things. Retrieval is synonymous with recall. The basic idea is you want your students to have to pull things out of their own mind. So rather than the like a lecture format or constantly reminding a student of what they should do, you want to have that student recall something that you previously have taught them, right? Uh, and effort goes hand in hand with this retrieval concept. So you don't want students retrieving something from their mind that's particularly easy to retrieve. So if we cover something in one class, if this is a fairly experienced student, then the following class, I might not touch on that material because it'll just be too easy for them to recall that information. So I'll wait, you know, however long it might be, and that's a bit of an art, to then recall whatever information it is I want those students to bring back to their short-term memory. All right. So this idea of retrieval is absolutely at the forefront of the concepts that I use and effortful retrieval is kind of the name of the game. Interesting, because when we've talked about similar strategies earlier on the podcast, we've talked about the importance of spaced repetition as a learning strategy for adults, right? Yes. Where as you progressively repeat the learning process and revisiting material you've already seen, you space it out so that further and further and further, Absolutely. you widen the gap so that people have to wait a while before they come back and they go through that retrieval exercise again, just to keep the connection strong. That's exactly and that kind of right. sounds like the way you've described it. Yeah, actually, there's a really neat analogy that I read. I think it was in the book, Make It Stick, which is a phenomenal book on uh, modern learning strategies. And the analogy kind of works like this. Um, hopefully I get this down the way that they say it, but you're essentially in a forest. So you picture yourself in a very dense forest. I'm going to imagine that you're near a lake in this dense forest. So some kind of a landmark 
and then you want to travel to some area of the forest. By traveling there, you create a path. So you're, you know, whacking down bushes and choosing a particular path. If you travel back and forth between that path, obviously that path is more well-worn, um, and you're going to know how to get from where you were to that point. Now, in the idea of retrieval, if you have a student retrieve something, so if you ask them a question and don't give them the answer, they have to go through that process of going from where they are in that forest to finding that answer in their own mind. If you mm. give them the answer, it shortcuts that circuit and they just appear at that destination and they're not forming that pathway. So I find that that analogy is really useful. So you're basically teaching how to learn. You're not spoon feeding them the answers. You're kind of teaching them a way so that they know how to find the answers through problem solving and uh, and recalling information that you've given them. Definitely the goal for sure. That's nice. So it's like almost like you're teaching them how to fish type thing. Yeah, absolutely. You could totally use that analogy. Yeah. I, I really like how you said, um, because again, I relate to, you know, a lot of what you're talking about, just being part of my job as well, how you're saying, uh, keeping it really basic, like the techniques that you teach, because with kids so easily when you're watching kids roll or compete, um, unless they're super high level, there are kids out there that are just phenomenal and they have really good understanding of jujitsu or they're just, uh, have really good coaches or maybe they're just super naturally good. It's so often that you see just like a scramble fest, you know, there's no, I, there's no concepts, there's no, there, there's no strategies. It's just like a, just an all out crazy role. But yeah, it's, it's like a fine line because you do want to teach them the concepts, but at the same time, you need to, you need to teach them moves because if they don't have moves, then they, you know, there's no jujitsu. So it's like, where do you sort of start? Because I find that kids only have uh, so much cognitive load available, like their, their focus bandwidth, you know, is it can only go so far, especially when you have a class that's you know, an hour or even 45 minutes, you know, we used to do 45 minute classes here and then we extended it to an hour just because a 45 minute class just goes by so fast. And, uh, you know, you want to cover material, you want it to stick and give the kids new tools while reinforcing the old tools, but you also need to let them roll so that they can actually try it out. So I guess like, how do you sort of decide the balance between concepts and teaching techniques and, you know, like re- when you say keep it simple, like are you sa- are you thinking like one technique a class or like a two technique per class? How, how do you sort of space that out? I can definitely get into this. So let's start from if I started from someone's first class. OK, and this is something I've done so many times because of new students just across the board. So let's say we have a student start in a knee ride position. OK, so. I put someone in knee ride position. One of the reasons I chose the knee ride was because on a kid's first day, if you have them mount another student, they're kind of like, what the hell am I getting into? So I choose the knee ride. It's a little more impersonal. So they're on top and they manage their center of gravity. So I I basically explain center of gravity. If there's some kind of glaring issue, like their posture is absolutely horrible. Their base is, you know, just not right at all. I'll correct those little things, but Related back to, I'll get into some more learning strategies later so I can relate to why I do these things. But basically, we'll start them in the knee ride position and have them learn what their center of gravity is and where their base is. So the bottom player, without any knowledge, will just start moving around while keeping their structure, their elbows tight. They'll start moving around and trying to displace the top player. They're trying to manipulate the top player's center of gravity. So we have a tiny mini game that involves the top player keeping their balance on the top of knee ride. All right. And the bottom player has worked on just they just have an idea of the structure. Right. So a very small amount of information. You talked about cognitive load, which is something I really use very frequently. So we have a destination now. We have the knee ride. Now we can move into a pass. All right. 
maybe a pass or potentially an escape for the bottom player. So the bottom player could learn how to bump the player in knee ride and then hip escape, or we can move into passing where the top player now has a destination and they learn a basic Toriando pass, for example. So some kind of side to side movement, very basic where they're framing the knees and they're moving left or right and trying to end up in that knee ride position. Then we add in some kind of basic frame mechanism for the bottom player and we have them understand frames. Maybe we touch on range, but likely just, look, you want to face the player on top and you want to frame the top player. Maybe I'll add frame the leading edge, but once I add in the leading edge, this is a little bit of extra information. Maybe I'm judging that this particular student should go with the simple just frame. Don't even like, maybe I won't even mention to to face, uh, likely I'd mention to face their training partner, but either way minimal amount of information. And if I can just expand on this for a second, now they'll play a bit of a game involving guard retention and passing so that they have that knee ride as a hub. Then from the knee ride, we might teach a very simple back take. We might teach a really simple tripod sweep at some point and a very simple engagement phase sort of hand fight. So I'm pretty sure I touched on everything. We have sweeping, passing, retention, back takes, uh, engagement phase. Oh, and then a escape from the back, like a very basic hand fight, get your back to the mat. And so now we have a game. And essentially from that point, I just manage the cognitive load. I use different tools to introduce new material. And eventually that game evolves into mm -hmm. at least two options, but maybe three or four options from certain positions. Yeah. So like incrementally, you start to, you start small with a position and then you kind of, I mean, essentially it's almost like you're mapping a system and over time sort of incrementally adding, you know, new uh, variables, new reactions and sort of, you know, help them sort of map their way through the neon belly in this case, you know, cause we've all, we've all had, uh, well, those of us who, t who teach kids regularly, you know, it's like <laughs> if you've never done it before, it can be pretty interesting because you can tell when you've kind of broken the kids brains when you've <laughs> overloaded them with information and then they just literally shut down it's like they they're just like oh god now i'm a, you know now i'm afraid to make a mistake i don't know what i'm doing so i just you know they don't make good decisions but i think they uh keeping it simple is one of the most valuable tools when it comes to teaching kids because uh you are, you know, in, in some kind of form, I kind of look at it as, you know, you are you are teaching beginners, right? But there are beginners who have extremely low attention spans and high energy, and uh, they may not be as confident as some, uh, you know, grownups. I mean, of course, there are adults who who don't have the confidence that they will get through lots of jujitsu training, but definitely keeping it simple, I think, is one of the most valuable things. It's like I, I realize when I teach kids, you know, maybe after a week. When I first started teaching kids, I'm like, okay, it's very obvious to me that less is more at this point and let's keep it simple. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because, you know, we've talked about incremental learning on the podcast before where as a black belt, a lot of the time you kind of view the world through the lens of a black belt and you don't remember what it was like the first time you saw a position or a technique, right? Because all of those details are so ingrained in your habits now that you don't even have to think about them. And so the mistake that I think a lot of instructors make is they kind of give all of the details to the student at once <laughs> and they won't rest until the 
student knows all of the details. So they'll keep coming by and correcting them every two seconds. Oh, your arm's out of place. Oh, now your knee's out of place. But that isn't always really productive because you kind of have to spoon feed details, you know, give them the core details they need to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And eventually, let them do it. Eventually, they'll hit a wall and they won't know what the next thing to do is. And that's when you can kind of come in and help them. But if you just overload them with all of the details at first, then it kind of makes the brain shut down. And that happens in adults. And I can only imagine it happens much worse in children. Yeah, you can't sit down a kid on their first class. Typically, there are exceptions and just start talking about alignment and, you know, teaching them from that perspective. Like I have to get them into play as quickly as possible and a form of play that isn't too daunting. You know, I don't want to start them in a rear naked choke and just say, all right, you know, give her try to escape. (laughs) Um, And so that's why I find the knee ride is kind of uh, an appropriate uh, starting point. Well, that's actually a really good point, which is just the intimidation factor. I mean, even for adults, jujitsu is really intimidating. And I think a lot of people, I mean, I count myself among these people, really, really hesitate to start training because they're so scared of the idea. But once they've done it for a while, most people kind of realize, you know what, this wasn't as bad as I thought. But when you're a kid, you know, this kind of stuff, in addition to the fact that you're kind of in an adult's world, it's kind of scary. You know, it is a very, very close contact combat sport. And when you've got someone sitting on top of you, especially if they're a lot bigger than you, it can really scare you and put you off. And what you've described here is a really interesting and I think good way to introduce kids, which is to pick a position or an idea that really illustrates the art. It's a very important thing to understand, but it's not intimidating and start with that and then gradually help them increase their comfort level. Yeah. And uh, Cal, I wanted to get your uh, opinion because a lot of the time when I was coming up through the ranks under my first instructor, there would be lots of movement drills. And I know that a lot of Rob's teaching and especially when you have a room full of, you know, experienced guys, they don't want to be spending the first 20 minutes doing like line drills, movement drills, things like that. But when it comes to beginners and kids, I find those drills to be really useful because the kids learn how to move. They, you know, the basic household moves like shots and sprawls and, uh, you know, like rolls and shrimping and stuff like that, that kind of every grappler needs to know, you know, you kind of I, I find at least for the junior kids, it's really important to sort of ingrain those movements so that at least they can they can try it, they can fail and then they can sort of see how, you know, how to make things better and keep focusing on those fundamental movements. Whereas, you know, if you're teaching, like I said, you got a high level guys, they're probably not going to want to do that. They're going to want to get right to drilling or working on specific material. Yeah. So there's this concept called Schmidt's schema theory for motor learning. Basically, what it entails is you have a generalized motor program. So just the broad strokes of a particular movement. And then the schema includes a feedback loop of the repetitions that you've put in on that particular movement. Um, An example would be like in tennis, like you have a, a backhand, for instance, that's your generalized motor program. And then every time you use that backhand movement, you're calibrating it more particularly to novel situations. Prior to schema theory, the idea was you'd create a specific movement pattern for every single movement you do. Okay, so this is the idea that you have a gross movement pattern, a generalized motor program, and then you refine it given particular feedback. And so relating to what you're saying with the kids, yeah, like, it's pretty frequent. I wouldn't say frequent, but 
sometimes I'll have the kids do solo movements. If I see them try to do a particular movement, like something really basic, like a bridge, for instance, and I recognize, okay, there's no way this, this kid's going to be able to do a bridge, particularly with another kid on top of them, then in that case, I'll show just the bridge by itself. Uh, you know, we might move into the hip escape. Uh, we might even do, you know, high legs against the wall, for instance. If a kid's having a hard time breaking down the movement with a training partner, we'll start repping that generalized motor program in a different context, so solo, and then we'll introduce it back into them training with their training partner. Yeah, I, I like that idea of doing the solo drills first. And I find that when you do that, it's kind of they're not really relying on the reaction of the other partner because that they're okay, who is maybe like, you know, helping them do that drill, they may be so new that they don't even understand exactly. how to apply the proper reaction, right? Exactly. So that's where solo drills can really, I think, skip that headache. And I love the idea of using the wall when you're working with kids. Yeah. Um, I think that like the high legs against the wall and wall walks and, uh, you know, even for the more senior kids, when, they, when we start to teach things like inversions, uh, the wall can become really useful rather than just uh, trying to do it on a straight line. Um, I wanted to get your opinion because, and again, this is no knock to you guys or uh, at Island Top Team, but I mean, you guys aren't really like known for uh, stand-ups exchanges. Like you're not like wrestlers by trade, pretty, pretty homegrown jujitsu style, lots of guard pulling. And we're the same way at On Guard too. But I find that uh, when you get kids in the room, wrestling is something that they pick up so quickly. And it's just something, something about wrestling is just so natural for kids and uh, and I I really gravitated my my junior kids at least especially the junior kids but a lot of the seniors as well as I like to focus on wrestling because I feel like it gives them a good understanding of uh, base and also it can I feel like it can boost confidence if they understand okay like I'm gonna be comfortable on my feet now and I understand that there is going to be transitions from standing to the ground and if if they're gonna compete then. That's just going to be the reality of the situation. Something about wrestling is just so natural for kids that uh, that is something that I focus on. I just wanted to get your opinion on that. I find that, like you said, the kids, they really just enjoy wrestling. So I definitely like to teach wrestling, definitely like to teach stand-up. You could say I have a bit of a fear of teaching kids jujitsu and then them ending up in a situation it's unlikely, but that they would have to defend themselves physically and then not having the right tools to do that. So yeah. I absolutely need these students to feel comfortable on their feet, hand fight from their feet, you know, snap down, double yeah. leg, some basics. Yeah. And that way, I think, you know, it really adds value to their training, not just like we're trying to win medals here where I can just pull guard. But like you said, in a real situation, you know, if a kid gets into an altercation and they have to they have to use their grappling. It's like, well, if you have wrestling, you already have such a fantastic base in a self-defense situation. I think the parents see a lot of value in that too, because, you know, the last thing I would want one of my kids to do in a fight would be just sit on their butt, right? (laughs) In a competition. Yeah, sure. Cause the rules, the win conditions allow it, but in a self-defense situation, like I want, I want my kids to be able to like clinch up and not fall over and, and have some base under their feet. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember Dave Camarillo talking about 
wrestling versus judo. And he was talking about how if he wants to get someone up to speed in an MMA fight and that he wants to get them a good grappling game on their feet, he's going to teach them wrestling because there's something just intuitively natural about it. And even after you've just been training it for a little while, you can get value out of it. Whereas with something like judo, to get to the point where you could really use it in a high level fight, like you might have to train it for 10 years. And I remember this too from when I was in school. There's just something that is intuitively natural about wrestling that you just don't see in a lot of other arts like jujitsu. Like, I mean, I love jujitsu. You can't argue with the effectiveness of jujitsu, but it's real complicated, (laughs) right? Whereas wrestling has this beautiful simplicity to it. And I think that makes it especially useful for kids because it's just so intuitive. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Like jujitsu is so, so complex at times, like some positions, even you take the most basic you know, talk about like an arm bar from guard or Kimura. It's like, dude, you could go down rabbit holes for a long time talking about how it works, why it works, different reactions you're going to get and different different places you can go with an arm bar from guard. It's like, but wrestling, it's like, okay, just we got to get our opponent down to the ground. Let's, you know, let's talk about clinching. Let's talk about underhooks. Let's talk about snap downs, you know, and it's like, it's real basic. Show the scoop singles, show a double leg, show a sprawl. And like, before you know it, you got, you've already got more material than like one class can allow. So there is something beautifully simple and effective about wrestling. I think it's one of the best bases for kids when they begin their uh, grappling journey. Absolutely. And just as another tool, I mean, it's essential in my mind for a complete grappler, but as another tool to provide the same concepts we're always teaching in a slightly different context. So it's just another opportunity to review posture, structure, base, and all those things. Yeah. And then they can see those concepts, you know, because, because from, from my kids, I, I don't think I would, I don't know if I would explain the entire alignment theory in one class. I think that's a lot of material, but you could explain like, okay, let's talk about posture today. You know, why do, why do you have grandma and grandpa telling you, you should, you should stand up straight with your shoulders back. It's like, uh, they might not even think about that. Maybe it's just because they think uh, it's the proper way to position themselves. But then you go in and you explain, well, when you position your spine in, in that in a, in a manner where it's most effective, you're going to be stronger. You're going to be less vulnerable to attack. Uh, even in a social setting, you're going to have people that, you know, you make better first impressions. They they think that it portrays confidence and courage and all those things that are really important Absolutely. outside of jujitsu. So it's like, you know, when they leave, they're going to they're going to think, OK, well, like I'm going to consider the position of my spine, especially. And, and then you can say, oh, well, this is not just for jujitsu. This is for every physical exertion and for, you know, when you go and and you know, meet friends for the first time or meet, meet a teacher, or you have to talk to a grown up. That's something that they're going to see and say, Oh, wow. Like that, I, I really see how you're carrying yourself. Exactly. That touches on the idea of the learning strategy of elaboration. So just connecting jujitsu to other things that they already know, talking about alignment in terms of other sports that they might play. And just to make it clear, like when I teach class, I mean, obviously, we know the framework as instructors, but it's almost as if I have a a word bank of 50 words that, you know, includes obviously alignment and all of our concepts. And I just use those words very frequently. I don't expect that the kids are going to put it all together. Man, I I mean, it, it took me years to even begin to really understand how these concepts work. It's kind of a weird perspective now that I really have a solid grasp on those concepts, but it mm-hmm. takes time. You know, so I'm definitely not trying to have them understand really 
any given concept in a single class. Maybe they get a they touch on it and then one day they're like, oh, wow, I totally understand what you've been talking about this whole time. Right. Yeah, it's funny. You you kind of have to feel it before you can understand it. And this is something that we talked to John Thomas about recently, and he actually is not like a big fan of learning with principles. He kind of prefers getting his hands dirty with techniques, which I thought was a a really interesting approach. So I was asking him about it. And the thing that kind of came away from this conversation was that the problem with just thinking with like your head in the clouds is that you need real world experience to anchor those frameworks onto. Like the way that I would describe it is, and this is something that is very <laughs> recent and relevant to me, when you're teaching a toddler how to start speaking, you don't sit them down when they're one year old and be like, okay, honey, here's how grammar works. Here's what Such a noun a is. It's like, no, you just start making sounds and eventually yeah. they start repeating them and eventually they start putting them together. And one day they got words and that's when they start asking questions. Then you explain, okay, well, honey, this is what an animal is. This is, you know, and then eventually they learn bigger and bigger concepts like grammar and reasoning, but it's very hard to learn those high level concepts without having your hands in the dirt first so that you know what's being talked about. And that's something that I, I think sometimes, I mean, we talk a lot about mental models and principles on the show, but those are not a substitute for actually getting your hands dirty. And I think that any concept based approach is well served by getting the student to try something first and hit that point of frustration And then you can start helping them get the light bulb to turn on because they can start to see the pattern between the things that they've already done. It's funny. I have a number of learning strategies. And then my final learning strategy, I don't really have a name for it, but it's essentially what you said. It's this, this, this idea that we are learners. You know, humans are learners. It's an innate thing that we have in us. It's how we've come to where we are now. Uh, And so you have to understand that basic fundamental process of learning. Kids can just watch what you're doing. And they'll just sort of mirror that. Um, so I think that's a, just a phenomenal point. It's so important that uh, just like a kid learning to speak or walk, it's the exact same thing. And you have to sort of introduce someone at that rate. You can't just drop everything on them on day one and expect that they're going to put it all together. I really like to draw a line between, you know, concepts and techniques. Techniques are brilliant representations of concepts. You know, it's kind of hard to separate the two. Mm-hmm. You're right. Like, I think you definitely just have to, to some degree, you got to just let the kids kind of go at it, you know, and let them, I find one of the, one of the biggest mistakes that I made at the beginning was I was constantly correcting, you know, and this is the, this is true for adults as well. If you're, if you're just as an instructor constantly correcting because things aren't going, you know, as particular students aren't drilling or performing techniques the way that you would like them to do them. And then you're constantly in their ear correcting them. Again, you kind of get that same effect on the student where they kind of just break down and they're not able to focus the same manner. Whereas if you let them fail and then they can see the consequences of their mistakes, then they're, and then after you can talk to them and be like, okay, like you see how you got past there. Well, that happened because of this rather than like stopping them right when they're doing something and giving, always giving them that feedback. Like, I think it's, I think it's good to give, to give feedback consistently, but definitely if you're going like always just constantly correcting, correcting, then it it kind of, you get a a negative return on that. Yeah. You know, for example, when a kid is particularly new, if they turn their back to their training partner in some given situation, that's something I will absolutely say, okay, look, never turn your back in this situation. And similar, if they are just falling over, 
very easily. I'll address something like that. It'll be like, look, if a student's hip just keeps hitting the mat over and over again, this is a really like a major mistake that we need to fix really early on. So yeah, like I'm definitely not just being like, look, look, kids, like this is alignment. This is base posture structure. Like I absolutely do not start like that. It's more so face your training partner, you know, and then build from there. And then maybe six months in, well, no, that's not true. Maybe six weeks in, I'll ask a question and one of the kids will be like, oh, that's because your posture's broken, you know? Yeah, it's like you said at the beginning of this episode, you can't shortcut the journey. Like your job is not to give them the end result. Your job is to guide them so that they take the journey successfully on their own. And a big part of learning is guiding them to the point where they get frustrated with the limits of their own knowledge and they're ready for the next lesson. And I remember having this experience at my first gym, which was very much an old school technique based gym where they didn't really seem to care that much about what was going on in your noodle. Like they just wanted to basically give you all of the steps to do the move. And you'd have the instructor sitting there barking at you the whole time. Like, no, your, your elbows out of position. Oh no, now your knees out of position. And you know, it's just a, just a litany of minor details to the point that as the student, it's hard to actually tell like, okay, do all of these details really matter? Like what, what are the things that really matters? And something that we've talked about on the podcast is this thing that Matt brought up, this concept of critical control points, which is that like for, for some moves, you know, there's maybe a few details that really matter. And those are the ones you got to make sure your students really, really understand. But a lot of the other stuff you can kind of freewheel depending on the context. But at the end of the day, like there's a few things that are really big enough that it's worth correcting people. But a lot of the little things, you got to let it slide until the student gets a bit more experience. Yeah. And and I feel like, uh, you know, when you're, when you're showing techniques to kids and they're, they're drilling a move or whatever. It's also really important as the instructor to realize that like, Hey, what if, if a leg is out of position or a knee is out of position, it's not really good feedback to be like, okay, just move your left knee inside their armpit. Cause they're going to literally use their right leg and they're going to do the complete opposite of what you ask. Right? Like a lot of kids don't even know their lefts and rights yet. Even adults, um, you know, they come in even though they know their lefts and rights for the most part, if you say like, okay, put your right foot inside here. If you use your words to do that, very rarely do you get beginners that can actually like move move and uh in the way that you're instructing so it's actually a a tip that i kind of picked up not that i've studied the gracie university thing but i know that uh, i have a friend who does study that because they do have like a essentially a pedagogy section where they talk about instruction and instructing beginners and they say you know when it comes time to tell a student and i assume whether it's beginner or i assume this applies for kids as well and you have to say okay like put your arm here instead of saying it they literally grab the arm and they put it into the position rather than just using words you know it could save some headache too because otherwise you might just be like (laughs) giving three different commands before you finally get something you want or you might have to be physical anyways and move their arm uh, to the specific position so it's like i thought that was a pretty good tool as well when it comes time to showing positions I came across that too, and definitely, uh, at least pre-COVID, was using that all the time. I think it's called, they call it like the perfect, it's the perfect something, the perfect uh, Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know the name that they call it, but I think you're right. The, uh, you're onto something there. The perfect adjustment? Something uh, like that. Yeah. And it really is very effective to just put them in the right place. If I can just dial back a little bit here, I think it'd be a good time to talk about, I'm sure you guys have talked about this before, but just to touch on... We keep mentioning cognitive load, and I'm not sure if we've mentioned chunking um, today, 
You guys, I'm sure you've talked about that before. No. Chunking? I think we've brought it up. I'm de- I'm definitely familiar with the concept, right? You're talking about basically how the brain can make connections if you absorb certain bits of information kind of chunked together in like a maximal size packet. Is that what you're talking about? Sort of. So just the idea of cognitive load in the sense of how many ideas you can hold or how many details you can hold in your short-term memory at a given time. And then chunking would be sort of the practical application of cognitive load. So basically across the board, the average person, there are a lot of studies on this and different numbers, but the average person can hold about four things in their mind, their short-term memory uh, at once. So that would be an example of a chunk. So if I want to demonstrate a particular sequence, I'm going to go with four. If it's an, if it's like a, a big class, I'll go with four. I might recognize that if a student's particularly young, um, we don't have anyone really younger than about five, but sometimes five-year-olds, they might need a single detail. Like I might just say frame, but usually it's about four. So the cognitive load of the average person is approximately four. Some people, it's crazy. Like they can have tons of detail in their mind at once, and some people it's fewer. But just having that number of four, uh, even three, I, I kind of like. Uh, and definitely no more than about seven. And that's really how much I should be, how much detail. I mean, I know it's kind of hard to break down what you're saying into like, is that three elements or four elements? But you can kind of guess. And then you create a chunk. So I teach some little piece of information that's about a block of about four details or a concept with two other details. Then they start working on that. Now that they've consolidated that chunk into a single element of their short-term memory, I can build on that chunk and fill in those other gaps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why if you're going to a seminar and the instructor is trying to like cram 10 different techniques into one seminar, probably he's doing it wrong, (laughs) right? I think that you need to keep this kind of stuff in mind in terms of the number of things that you can put into someone's head in order to get maximal value. And I mean, I've personally used similar memory tricks to try to retain knowledge when I go to one of these lessons. Like I, I will, for example, if I'm at some you know, some seminar and the instructor is just rattling off techniques. I mean, it's not the greatest approach, but heck, I paid for it. So I want to get value out of it rather than trying to remember at all times, all of the things he's saying, I'll just try to remember a number. So if he shows seven techniques, I'll remember in my head, the number seven. And then a day later after the seminar, I'll remember that number seven and I will sit down and I'll try to manually extract from my brain and write out the specific seven techniques and the steps for doing them. So by doing that, it's kind of like forcing myself to do spaced repetition. Yeah. And that's retrieval practice. Exactly. Exactly. Retrieval practice. Yeah. Yeah. Now in an ideal world, the instructor would not create the situation where that is required. So the best thing that you can do as an instructor is to manage the cognitive load of your students and make sure that you don't overwhelm them with details. I mean, I know that there's kind of this weird thing where where many gyms have kind of centered around this like three techniques a day thing that just seems to sort of be the benchmark. I even feel that that's too much. I mean, my instructors have kind of dropped that down to sort of centralize on like one, maybe two concepts per day because you go beyond that and you're you're really kind of stretching how much stuff you can cram into someone's head, especially if they're white belts or if they're very, very junior. Yeah, I definitely do not go into three separate techniques in a day, but 
I'll have the students start with drilling something in particular at the beginning. Typically, I'll start with a drill. It could be something else. I like to switch the classes up really frequently and kind of keep them guessing. But then as the class progresses, I'm connecting the new information to existing information, which is a form of elaboration, one of the learning strategies, uh, and then having them play games where they're integrating the new information into, again, pre-existing information. So when I say, just to make sure this is this is pretty clear, like I'm definitely not doing three separate techniques with different levels of detail to each technique. I'm talking like a few details on a single technique or concept. Yeah, then definitely keeping it simple is, is I think, again, sort of the concept that we're talking about here, you know, because I would way rather my junior or senior kids students go home and have one thing that they learned rather than me trying to cram three to, you know, three to five things in their head. And then they, they really don't learn anything properly. It's just, yeah. it's, it's more me being an instructor trying to flex my knowledge at the end of the day, rather than actually trying to get something across to them. One thing that's actually an interesting mental model that comes up in the artificial intelligence realm is this concept of transfer learning, which is basically where when you're training a computer, it can use the knowledge that it gains in one discipline to learn another discipline. And the interesting thing is it looks like human beings actually learn in similar ways. And this is something that John Thomas talked about on the episode that he did with us, where he talked about how sometimes if you want to get better, rather than trying to laser focus on one thing, it's good to try other things because by learning in one discipline, your brain can apply that knowledge in other disciplines as well and make you stronger across the board. So, so that's important when you're teaching because it implies that it's better to shake it up and to give some variety in your classes. And that's why I think that a common mistake instructors make is they'll have a theme for a month or two where, where they'll have arm bars for one month and they're just doing little rote variations of the same technique over and over again for an extended period of time. And I feel like it might be a more productive approach to add variability. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not an effective form of retrieval if you're doing the same thing all the time because you're not having to use much effort in that retrieval process. Um, this reminds me of something I read a while back. Um, I'm not sure if this is entirely true across the board, but basically in a traditional public school system, at least here in Canada, and I'm pretty sure in the States, you learn different topics completely separate from one another. And as I understand it in, for instance, a Montessori model, you'll learn a topic, like you'll learn, you'll be doing music, and then you'll learn the history of music, and you'll learn the science behind music, and it's all connected in that way. And that, like, connecting, like you mentioned, by doing something else and coming back to what you were doing, it can help you to learn more effectively. So just considering that model um, of sort of that Montessori versus a, a typical public school approach where you're just relating various things, it just makes that learning process so much easier. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So on that topic, I know that something else that you guys are eager to talk about promotion strategy for kids. Cal, I'd really like to pick your brain about belt testing and promotion strategies for your kids class. So, you know, I, I could say up front that, man, I put a lot of work into the process of teaching and how to make these kids as good as possible, as quickly as possible and for them to have a good time. But man, when it comes to uh, specific uh, belt testing and that sort of thing, I can't say I've put, I, I could I could grow in that area quite a bit. What I will say is testing 
I don't like using testing and I'm not the person who came up with this, but using testing as a form of evaluation, I use testing as a form of retrieval practice. So I'll have, depending on the student, typically this student has to be a little bit more advanced, but I'll say, you know, all right, guys, we're going to have a bit of a quiz class today and it'll be, okay, show me, show me a hand fighting sequence. All right, perfect. Um, show me a tripod sweep. All right. What's a nice follow up to the tripod sweep? Excellent. All right. What's happening? Like, why is this working? You know, name a concept for me. So in that sense, I'm doing quizzing or testing and I am evaluating the students and their level of knowledge, but I don't at all put them in a situation where it's like, you're coming to class today to do a test to show me that you're capable of whatever that belt is. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I think there are merits to obviously different ways of doing things, but that's how I do things. Yeah. And I think, I think the testing format for Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is, you know, it's kind of a, it kind of, it's kind of a two way street. I know Cal, you were, you were somebody that I talked to pre COVID times when I was trying to actually design a, a kid's belt test you know, I was I was thinking like I'm not a big fan of belt tests either. Um, I've done them as an adult and we don't do them for adults at all. And I don't really believe in them, but they do have, I think, some value when it comes to kids, because, you know, jujitsu is such a vast art. There is so much to learn. And I think that it is good to almost have either homework or I think the term that we kind of settled on was we kind of called it a playbook rather than uh, a test because, uh, and I know Rob's not hot on the idea, you know, he sort of looks at the test as a, or what a test is as a pass or fail thing. My intention to having a test would not necessarily be a pass or fail thing. It would be more, okay, you're given this booklet, whether you're, you know, I wrote, I wrote a test for the gray, yellow, orange, and green belts. And it was more, at the end of the day, the way that I was applying it was more of a playbook where I was envisioning, you know, maybe a month or two or even three months before a, a kid is maybe ready to get their belt. I would give them this playbook and it would have, uh, I'm just going to pull it up right here. It would have all different types of ways to express their knowledge. So there'd be like, there'd be theoretical, a theoretical portion. So for example, let's let, I can just rattle off a few things here, like the gray belt test. So the very first belt you would get after white belt, I had a theory section. So there would be, uh, you know, questions that are kind of unrelated to jujitsu, more related to character building. So uh, a few things I have written down is like, what is dedication? You know, what is ownership? What is a guard? What is a sweep? What is a takedown? What is a goal? You know, what is a strategy for reaching goals? Why is losing important, etc. So like character building. And then I had a, uh, then they would have to do a practical where they would have to demonstrate particular solo movements. These would be examples. Examples of this would be like heisting, hip escaping, butt scooting, you know, forward roll, break fall, all this stuff. And then there would be techniques that they would need to perform on a uke. And then, and then actually for this test, I actually have miscellaneous stuff. So they would have to tie their belt in front of me. They would have to explain how and why we shake hands. They'd have to tell me one thing they like about jujitsu, one thing they don't like about jujitsu. And then the test, regardless of belt, always ends with a situational sparring. So this is like, you know, I, I, again, I don't like the pass or fail sort of situation the way that I envisioned it is the kids would come in and um, you know they would have had this playbook for a few months 
and these are the moves you need to show. And if you don't know these moves, you either need to ask me about it in class or you need to, you know, look on YouTube and sort of study on your own. Right. And then this way, one one sort of hidden value with this is that the parents might get involved and then they can have a deeper understanding of of uh, what the kids are going through, you know, and sort of what they're learning and why they do the things they do, because, I, you know, I'm sure to a lot of the untrained eye of the parents, they're they don't know what they're looking at. Right. Like they might know what guard is, but they don't know any of the strategies that are going on. They just know to cheer for their kids obnoxiously from the sidelines sometimes. Right. So uh, I, I I like this idea. Again, this was something that I sort of put together pre COVID and I haven't put into practice yet, but it's, it's something that I'm thinking about doing is just sort of like giving them a playbook, much like uh, I, I played football for one year as a kid. And, um, you know, at the beginning of the season, the first half of the season was practice. Second half of the season, you start playing games. And the whole first half of the season is just like going over plays. And they literally give you a playbook that shows because you need to have these plays so that you know where you're going to go and when when they call what play you're going to do. Right. So I sort of likened it to that. Yeah, a lot of good points there. Um, I I would definitely like to put together some kind of a bit of an instructional material for those students, for the kids, and having them communicate with their parents is huge. If they can have discussions with their parents, typically any kids in my class whose parents also train, man, it's you know it's definitely not a coincidence that those kids really excel. Although there are kids that don't have parents in the class that also excel. But just that ability and that connection between the parents and the kids, man, that's that's huge. And that's a big element of how I deal with, um, you know, kids that might be more challenging in class. I typically will communicate with the parents before I really do much directly with the kids and try to find out, you know, if there's a reason behind whatever the kids are doing. I don't typically overtly ask them questions like, um, what was it you said at the very beginning there, at the beginning of your, your testing? You asked a particular question so it was the beginning is sort of a it's a theoretical sort of portion of the test where um you know the 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 tests change as i've written them because the gray belt is obviously kind of the first promotion so it was more so questions of character like you know what is a goal what you know why what do you like about jujitsu what don't you like about jujitsu like why do we shake hands these types of things but as the tests progress, I started to add a conceptual theory, theory portion where it would be like, OK, explain to me posture or, uh, you know, I, I know that one of your criticisms was of the of the idea of testing is that the kids be, start to regurgitate rather than learn. Maybe I could explain what posture means. And then these kids are literally going to regurgitate what I say back to me in the test. And that's not really what I want. But what I could say or what I could do during the practical part is I would put them in a position and say, okay, show me good posture from this position because posture structure base changes. It's relative to the goals and the nature of the situation. So, you know, I could, I could put them in a position and say, okay, like how would you create good structure from this position? You know, are, are your structures broken from this position or do you have good structures and sort of that way they would know, yes, they do need to know on paper what, posture structure base means, but they also need to apply it in a real situation. So they're not just regurgitating my definitions, but they're actually able to problem solve and show it, you know, and start to see it in any given situation. Yeah, I like to ask a lot of open ended questions so that the concepts that they come back at me with aren't just regurgitation. 
I don't want to make the concepts cliche. And so I like to ask really open-ended questions and then they can kind of come together even as a group to find the right answer to a given question. Now, just touching on the idea of character development, I think the main thing that I do in regards to character development really all comes back to teaching the students how to be good training partners. To me, really like fundamentally, I like to think of myself as teaching jujitsu. I'm teaching nothing else, but jujitsu can teach them plenty of things that they need to learn. So in teaching them to be a good training partner, those are the kinds of skills that will translate outside of the gym. Uh, but it's just sort of the way I approach it. I don't know if it's a lack of experience or comfort in just sort of directly addressing certain things with kids and asking them those questions about character. I like to kind of just incorporate it within the lesson and how to be a good training partner. And that's typically, you know, how you end up being a, a decent person. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that character and integrity are highly undervalued aspects of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, not just for kids, but for adults as well. I mean, there are a lot of people who get to black belt and they still really don't demonstrate what I would consider to be the requisite character to act as an ambassador to the community. And this, I think, is an area where it would be really nice if we we cared about that to the same extent that we cared about just your your individual skill. And I think that one of the great things about any martial art, and that includes jujitsu, is its ability as a vehicle to build good habits and to build character. And yeah, you have a great example, whereas, you know, learning the specific mechanics of jujitsu may not make you a better person, but it is a vehicle and a driver to kickstart those processes and to build discipline and to teach you respect. And that in itself makes it a super valuable activity for the young. So Cal, back onto the topic of learning strategies, what other techniques have you discovered for working with kids? So we went over effortful retrieval, cognitive load and chunking. The next few that I would, uh, that I regularly use. So blocked practice versus an interleaved practice. This is a really common learning strategy people talk about. A blocked practice it just means doing the same thing over and over for a given period of time versus an interleaved practice, which means doing one thing and then a different thing and then a different thing and just sort of circling back eventually to the first thing you did. So blocked practice can typically be useful if either you're very advanced and you need a lot of details on a particular position because it's going to challenge you cognitively because you're going to have a bunch of details or if you're particularly new and you need to learn something you never learned before that's going to be challenging so we're going to just do a basic blocked practice for that but an interleaved practice the real benefits to interleaving your practice has to do with the idea that you're regularly bringing uh, existing ideas into your short-term memory so it's like okay i'll practice a tripod sweep okay and i'll do that a few times and then i'll move into uh, something else, like uh, maybe a Toriando pass. Usually these are things that you've previously learned. This isn't new information. That's where you'd use that blocked practice. And so this practice of bringing new information into your short-term memory has proven to be very effective in long-term, more durable learning. Some studies have been done comparing blocked and interleaved practice. And basically what it shows is people typically want to do a blocked practice because they feel as though they're getting better at a skill in the short term. And an interleave practice makes them feel as though, man, like I'm, I'm not getting much better at this skill right now. I feel like I could really stick to it a lot longer. But in the long run down the road, people who do the interleaved practice typically perform better in a test environment. And the reason that people believe this is true 
is because they're more accustomed to bringing information into their short-term memory and using that retrieval practice once again. Yeah, and I kind of wonder to what extent that's actually tied to transfer learning, where by getting exposed to all of these new ideas, you're able to see the patterns between them. I think if nothing else, it definitely keeps you more engaged. And as you discussed, it forces you to continually bring these items back into your short-term memory. Additionally, it's just a lot more fun. That too. I think this is a big deviation from the way that most instructors structure their programs, where they've got a month of arm bars or a month of guard or whatever. I think that just constantly shaking it up makes things both more interesting and more efficient for learning. Now, yeah, I completely agree. But the key detail here is I'm trying as best I can to bring information back to the students before they forget it so it is random in a sense but it's also not random at all because it seems random maybe to the student but as the instructor i want to make sure we touch on something before the student forgets it Uh, a lot of analogies here you know like i've heard of one where it's like you're cooking and you have food in a pan you need to stir the food frequently or it's going to burn to the pan it's the same idea uh with sort of learning a new technique or a new skill if you don't stir it you know it's it's you're it's useless who taught you that shit that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> the cook. I mean, it, it it depends. Not to go down a rabbit hole, but like if you were to add a steak to a hot pan and then move it around a bunch, you wouldn't get that sear and it would stick. So that I, I mean, just like jujitsu, there's tons of there's tons <laughs> of exceptions. But let's not go down the culinary rabbit hole. <laughs> you triggered me. <laughs> yeah, you're the wrong guy to bring this up with. All right, I'll move into two more learning strategies that complement each other as well. Uh, and these kind of sound similar to the last two, but they, they are a bit different. So it's just constant practice versus a varied practice. This is something I'm sure everybody does, but just to put a name on it will help uh, help you categorize it. So a constant practice basically just means whatever repetition you're doing, your training partner is giving you the same feedback every time. Okay, I'm sure you can imagine when this would be useful and when it wouldn't. A varied practice is just... Essentially, it's situational drilling or, you know, micro sparring, whatever you want to call it, where your training partner is giving you variable resistance. So you're training a particular movement. Maybe it's a guard pass. In the constant version, you're doing the exact same thing over and over again. In the varied version, they're switching up how they're going to defend that particular pass. All right. So just constant versus varied. It's not complicated at all, but they're just super useful tools. And we always bring it back to this idea of effortful retrieval, retrieving things before they just kind of disappear. You know, this is a really great example and also something that is important as an adult to learn because when you're an adult you sort of gravitate towards your a game and you'll see this happen a lot where if you've got two guys and you just have them spar a standard jujitsu match they're both going to just gravitate to whatever it is they're particularly good at and most comfortable with and that of course makes sense because you know when you're in the middle of a of a sparring match your your mind may not want to allow you to use techniques that you're not particularly good at you're going to favor things that you're good at. So you kind of need to shuffle the deck if you want to encourage learning. You need to put people in situational positions where they can't play the game that they want to play. So maybe you've got a guy who always pulls guard. Well, if you just let them spar, he's always going to wind up on the bottom. So to really get good, you've got to create situations where he's got to go on top and pass. And a big part of encouraging people to break out of their existing habits and to learn new things is to create these situational moments where they have to use new things. Because otherwise, they'll fall back to what they know. 
Yeah. And that's great for adults as well. Like I, I have some guys that are, you know, really good in one aspect, but not very advanced in other aspects. So sometimes I have to go to them and be like, Hey, this month, you're not allowed to do any submissions or you're not allowed to do any footlocks. Like you have to focus on not getting your guard passed. That's, that's your number one and vice versa. I have other guys that are not quite up to date with leg locks. It's like, okay, you, the only thing I want you to do is en- find entrances to the legs. Like, I, I don't want you to focus on smashing people or, or, you know, playing your A game. I want you to, I want you to p- focus on the things that you're not good at. Yeah. And definitely. And I mean, I use these strategies with the adult classes as well. I teach the adults pretty much daily as well, but just with the kids, it's, it's such basic material and they're such beginner learners that really, once someone hits a particular level, I find that, you know, they're going to, they're going to figure out how they learn on their own and they're going to kind of pick that path. And obviously as a coach, you're going to ch- try help guide them no matter what level they are. But just bringing it back to like, these are absolute beginners, like super beginners that I'm typically trying to consider this information for. So when it comes to like, I don't know, constant versus varied with an advanced player, you could just have them focus on, like, you'd have them use these particular strategies dependent on their experience level with that particular thing. But with a kid, their experience level with everything is virtually zero, right? So how to kind of use these in your favor for that particular demographic. Right on. Um, let me just, let me just jump into, uh, I think we talked about elaboration, like, really briefly. Um, yeah, yeah. But elaboration, it's actually a pretty deep learning strategy. There's a lot to it, but as far as I understand it, it has to do with connecting. So I can connect new techniques to existing techniques that the kids know. I can ask the kids questions about other sports that they play and relate those sports to jujitsu. Um, I can ask them questions about basic day to day things and the kind of posture they might assume if they want to pick up something heavy, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. That's that's elaboration. I use that all the time when I talk about picking up a heavy box or something like that. Yeah, exactly. It's such a good basic intro to, to alignment, essentially. Finally, let me get to um, just modeling, this idea of modeling as a learning strategy. So it's very simple. If I'm demonstrating a technique, um, usually I have an UK there. Uh, shout out to Corey Burton. Hell of an UK, hell of a training partner. He helps with the kids' classes, and he does a phenomenal job relating to the kids. Uh, And I think that's – it's just such an important thing when the kids come to class and they're like, where's Corey at? You know, they're just super excited. So that element is just super key. I had to to definitely throw a shout-out in there. But modeling. So when we're demonstrating a technique, the kids – sometimes I know they're not paying attention, you know? Like, they're not listening, that is. But they're looking at you. Their head might be out in the in the clouds, and you know I try to refocus them. But either way, sometimes I've demonstrated technique, and I recognize that the kids are not doing what I told them to do. They're doing what they saw, right? So it seems pretty obvious. But when you demonstrate a technique, you really have to have flawless technique as the people demonstrating, because the kids are going to mirror whatever it is you're doing. So I just think that's it's it's obvious, but it's super important to mention that you need to be a model in the class for the behavior that you expect from the kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that goes beyond just jujitsu and into the way that you conduct yourself off the mats as well, or even just when you're having conversation. It is a, a very, very underrated part of being an instructor 
to be a good role model and not just for kids. I mean, for adults too, you'd think, oh, well, we're all grown ups. We don't need our, our instructor to be a role model, but it makes a huge difference because if nothing else, the instructor sets the culture of the gym. And if the instructor doesn't care or doesn't actively take ownership of the culture and make it a positive place to train, then usually things fall apart. So if nothing else, it's very important for the instructor to mirror the good habits and good behavior that they want the rest of their students to see. And that's beyond just making sure that they do techniques properly. Yeah. And even just being like upbeat and positive kids respond so well to that. Like they will, Oh yeah, that sort of positive energy. I mean, again, it makes sense because kids are also humans, but it, it works the same way with adults as well. Like I think with the kids, you have to be a little bit more bubbly, I guess is the word. Like the younger they go, you know, yeah. you, you kind of have to be more of treating them, you know, more like kids, but positivity is something that all ages pick up on. You know, if you're, if you're not happy to be there as an instructor, Th- exactly. then it's just not going to be a good time for anyone. But you if you have to be having a good time, exactly. Like, but if you're, you absolutely have, but to. if you really show the kids, Hey, like I'm enjoying this, like it's cool to enjoy this. It's cool for everyone to be in here training. And even, you know, you fall down. I don't know about you, but like regularly, you know, we will have kids cry and it's just kind of part of it. Uh, it's mostly in the junior kids class, but it's, it's just part of it. And, and that is such a crucial, it's such a crucial growing opportunity because they can, a lot of the time they just, uh, you know, they'll have their little episode or whatever. And then, uh, you know, they'll need to sit and then I'll come by and talk to them and then I'll give them, you know, kind of a pep talk, like, okay, like let's get back on the horse, let's go in there. And then they get in. And then at the end of the class, I reiterate with them, like, you see, you could do it. Like you, you, you had an issue there. Uh, you know, you maybe you got hurt or whatever, but then you shook it off and I'm super proud of you for, for, for trying your best there. And then they, they, they come away thinking like, oh wow, like I, I was able to overcome adversity there, you know? Yeah, something that I think a lot of instructors do wrong is, yes, they're passionate about jujitsu, but that's not enough. You have to also demonstrate that you're passionate about teaching and you're passionate about your students. I think a lot of people who take on jujitsu as a professional career, you know, you kind of get the impression that they don't really want to teach. It's just that teaching is the way that they pay the bills to do what they really want, which is jujitsu. And it sometimes feels like they really couldn't care less about the success or failure of their students. And I think most of us have probably had an instructor in their lives at some point who is like this. And the thing that really sets top tier instructors apart is you can tell they really care about their students, both in the way that they conduct themselves with enthusiasm, but with that great example, Matt, that you gave, where they take an individual interest in helping their students overcome and helping them be better. And especially with kids, that's just, you know, as a parent, I know this, this is just so important to do and such a good practice. Yeah, I just want to reinforce that idea that if you're showing up to a class, not only are they paying, you know, with money, they're paying with their time as well. You have the attention of a group of people, whether they're adults or kids. Like it's it's honestly just absurd to me that you wouldn't spend that time as an instructor doing your best to create the best possible environment. It should be a good time. It should be high-level instruction and skill like these things should, it should be pretty straightforward. Like if we're a professional sport or professional art, whatever, however you want to look at it, that should go without saying, you know, but it, I mean, obviously it doesn't, but man, it's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. When you teach kids, Cal, like what is your objective that you want for the kids? Do you want them to become, I mean, obviously we want them to become better people, right? But uh, do, do you want them to become 
like champion grapplers? Do you want them to just learn jujitsu and self-defense? Do you sort of go with it and sort of if you see someone who's exceptionally talented, you sort of and and their interest in competition, you'll maybe you'll maybe focus that sort of angle on them. Whereas another kid who, you know, isn't as talented or is undisciplined, you focus discipline on uh, on them more than anything. Like what is your objective for kids when you go in and teach every day? It's definitely subjective. Um, depending on how long I've known a particular student, I'm able to cater those goals more specifically to that individual. But overall, to me, it's this idea of kind of having jujitsu with you everywhere you go, no matter what you do. You know, that's what I'd like for any kid who or adult who sticks with the program. That takes time. You know, that takes years. And I'd like for any student that really sticks around for any period of time. I think of it as having, you know, jujitsu in your back pocket. It's like you have a, a sense of so many things. I don't I don't think I need to break those things down, but that's kind of really my only goal. I want the kids to have a really good time in class. I'd like to believe that we can have a great time while doing something that benefits us and that's effective and I don't see why that's, uh, you know, not the reality of it. Mhm. I think fun, you know, again, it parallels kids and adults, but it definitely for kids it's got to be fun and and you know and it is fun a lot of the time and even when you get hurt it can be fun uh as as long as you learn something from it and you and character is built from it but uh definitely more kids will be flooding back to schools if they enjoy it and they're not going to fight with their parents if they enjoy it you know they're just going to they're just going to go in and and it, i find a lot of the time when they enjoy it you know it's a lot easier to get information to stick yeah it's funny i've had uh you know, in the past, I've had I had one kid that I remember, and he was like, we were going through something. He's like, man, like, this isn't fun, you know, and I'm thinking like, damn, like, this kid is right, you know, this, uh, whatever <laughs> we're doing right now, I need to restructure this, because you're totally right, you know, this should be fun, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I, I know that there's this big mentality, because I think, you know, a lot of jujitsu gyms are opened by people who come from a competitive jujitsu background, and so that's the lens through which they see the world, and, you know, maybe they are willing to sacrifice it all to win on the podium, but not everyone wants that out of jujitsu. And in fact, most of the people who help the instructors pay the bills probably don't want that. So fun is such a powerful motivator for jujitsu, especially in the early days of the hobby when this thing is scary and foreign and confusing. It's different if you've been doing it for, you know, eight to 10 years, because at that point you've kind of made the commitment that this is going to be a part of your life. But to get people in the door, you have to demonstrate that this is something that people can enjoy. And I would argue that even at the top schools, which are very competitive focused, being fun and having fun is such an important part of keeping morale and motivation high. I mean, yeah, I absolutely agree. There's a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Really enjoy it. Don't know if you read it, but it talks about this idea of self one and self two. So self one is your calculated mind and self two is more your intuition. And the, the book basically talks about this idea that there are certain skills that we can practice that might not win us medals on a podium but they will help us to more so enjoy our lives, you know? Um, and so organizing, structuring a training um, a, a room with that in mind, don't get me wrong. There are absolutely going to be champions in your class and there are going to be kids who want to be pushed and kids who need to be pushed. But overall, I think we're just kind of reiterating the same thing, you know, like, of course it has to be fun. Yeah, for sure. 
And it's amazing. Jiu-Jitsu is one of those things just because it's such a I mean, you can you can listen to all the different things that you've mentioned today, different learning, learning models and whatnot. Like jujitsu is one of those activities where you learn jujitsu and it gives you so many awesome tools for other sports, you know, job, uh, how you approach your career, how you solve problems, how you organize your time, how you you know, how you look at risk versus reward and, and action and consequence and things like that. It is it is truly a remarkable thing. And, and you know, you can totally see I, I have a lot of parents come to me and say, since my kids started doing jujitsu, like they've been really good in this area of life or they've been paying way more attention in class. You know, I, I don't want to I don't want to be inappropriate here, but it's like a lot of time it's boys that need this action. They need to be able to go to a place where they can safely wrestle and get that aggression out. And it's amazing how it affects their life positively in other ways. And have a girl their same age kick the shit out of them. Dude, it is one of my favorite things to watch is is a girl beat the shit out of a boy. It happens all the time. It happens, it happens all, yeah. all the time because they're at a point, you know, when they're when they haven't reached puberty yet where it's like there's still no physical advantage yet. You know, there's no strength advantage from the boy. At a certain age, I feel like, you know, when when they hit puberty, just the muscle mass and, and the, the bone density just can't be denied. But um, yeah, definitely for kids, you know, up to 10 years old and even a few years after, you're going to see <laughs> quite often girls kick the shit out of guys. And I actually find that girls are usually better learners than boys in general. Like they pay attention to the details more. And I, I find that they try to, they try not to goof around as much anyways. I've had a similar experience. You know, I think that's an age thing. Uh, and just to add a tiny bit to when you were talking about what, you know, kids or adults get out of jujitsu. And I think that making sort of an uncomfortable situation the norm is something that happens so frequently in jujitsu. Kids are learning to play while they're sort of fighting. You know, they're learning how to draw this line between we're playing a game, but we're trying to kill each other, you know, uh, and they're in positions where they're really uncomfortable frequently, but they get super comfortable with that discomfort. I mean, how how many life skills are more important than that? Yeah, yeah, that's a specific mental model that we talk about on the show, the notion of growth from discomfort and how all growth comes from pushing beyond your comfort zone and into things that you're not good at or you're not comfortable with. That kind of stress inoculation is very important. And when people say that jujitsu gives confidence and it'll make you better in the other areas of your life, where the mind goes is, oh, well, you know, I'm a badass and I can beat up my boss. But you know what? That's stupid. The reason why jujitsu gives you confidence in other areas of life is because it teaches you to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations and it teaches you that you can overcome them and thrive and learn from them. And there's not much more uncomfortable than someone sitting on you trying to submit you, right? So jujitsu is, for, in that reason, it's a very powerful learning tool. I think the reason why it's such a good confidence builder is not because it makes you think you're this badass, but it's because it teaches you to get comfortable in stressful situations. Yeah, I got one, I got one question for you, Cal. Have you ever had or heard of one of your students getting into an alterca altercation at school or, or outside of school and they use jujitsu? Yes. I had that for the first time pre-COVID and I was so fucking proud. <laughs> it was awesome. There. Dude, and the kids so cool. And and it was done in a safe manner. You know, it was Same. it was controlled and it was also a bully who has a bit of a reputation and was two years elder to the kid who who was able to take them down and mount them. If I'm not mistaken, it was a blast double and then <laughs> mounted <laughs> and held there while, while everyone was watching. And it's like, 
man, that is like, that is just such an amazing thing, especially when we live in a time where basically kids are encouraged not to fight and encouraged not to sort out problems, but go get a teacher, right? And then, of course, the the story that I keep hearing from these parents is the teachers don't do shit. They don't, you know, there's not much they can do. If they're there, they can do something. But how often is that going to happen, you know? And if they go to the principal, then often the principal kind of gives them the runaround and says, oh, well, you know, there's not really much we can do. So it's like, man, putting your kid in jujitsu, it gives them that tool to be able to kind of self-police the playground, you know? And and when I heard when I heard that that happened, I was so proud. And, and to hear that he didn't... Uh, uh, there, there was no excessive force, you know, it was controlled, it was disciplined and it was just, and that was just something so awesome. And it felt like when you hear stories like that, just everything becomes so worth it. Oh man. Yeah. I feel the exact same way. Really similar story on my end where, um, this one kid was just constantly dealing with a bully and it was a long-term thing. Like, I think this was like year two of this being an issue. And in this one circumstance, he gave the kid, you know, three or four warnings and same kind of deal, just absolutely dominated the guy without really hurting him. And I'd like to add to that. I have, I don't typically give speeches in my classes uh, or really like tell the kids anything. Like I said, I like them to learn through jujitsu, I find that it teaches them what they need to, to learn. But I'll tell you what, when I have a parent come in and tell me that one of their kids, you know, is dealing with bullying, oh man, like I will go off. You know, I've had some pretty passionate talks with my kids and I, I make it very, I just make it so important that they know that it's so important that there's a line. You know, you are totally a respectful person. There's no reason that you need to exert force on another person almost ever. But if someone is in your space and you've given them every opportunity, man, like you, you don't take that for a split second, yeah, you know, got to take control of it. That is something that I think is a mistake in the way that bully response has been traditionally taught. And I will credit the Gracie programs for correcting this, which is it used to always be that just ignore bullies and they'll go away. That is terrible life advice. Oh, they will not go away. It will only embolden them. Yeah. So there comes, I mean, of course you want to deescalate. You should Absolutely. always deescalate first and foremost, but there is a point of no return where you have to fight back and, to, and protect yourself. And that's where jujitsu is so powerful. And, you know, as a black belt now, you know, now I understand why we say position over submission. Because, of course, when you start off, you get caught up in these fancy submissions and you think about how awesome it would be to armbar or choke someone. But let me tell you, there is no greater humiliation for a bully than having someone sit on their chest for five minutes and just look at them disappointedly and lecture them. <laughs> that is way more damaging than choking them or arm barring them like positional dominance is a level of power that submissions don't have because it demonstrates that I could hurt you, but I choose yeah. not to. And that allows you not just to win, but to take the higher ground, which sends such a powerful That's message so to the bully. So awesome. I love jujitsu. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, just to jump on your point about position before submission, I mean, obviously alignment over everything. Right. And uh, when you think about alignment as a tool for teaching kids, Man, if a person walks around with the right alignment, you know, a bully does not approach that type of person, you know? And so that's, that's just a simple thing where kids learn like, oh, that's how I'm supposed to stand. Oh, like, this is how I'm supposed to use my body, you know? And that, that cue is going to show other kids that like, look, this, this person, you can tell by their body language that they're, they're comfortable in their own skin. And that's the first step. 
Yeah, when I'm walking down the street, I'm always walking with a strong elbow knee connection and a stagger stand <laughs> so I can shoot that blast double on That's anyone who comes I mean, near me. That's not what I mean, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Um, yeah. One other thing I'd like to add is... You know, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the time, and this is a very common pattern, you know, the kid comes into the class and the parent drops them off and they sit there and watch on the sidelines. But then there's that one day where the parent is like, you know what, I want to give this a try. And one thing that we didn't touch on is the power of jujitsu as a family bonding activity, because I've got a lot of, you know, child parent pairs who train and it gives them something. It gives them a connection that grownups and kids often don't get in the real world. Right. I mean, I remember and Matt, I'm sure that you remember when we were kids, like whatever mom and dad did was like this weird mystery that a kid can't possibly understand. Like, I know I know they go to work, but I don't know what that means. I have no point of reference to connect with my parents. But jujitsu allows kids to connect with their parents in a way that they're not going to get just by living life in their standard like roles. That just doesn't exist. But jujitsu is like a bridge between those two worlds that brings them together and lets you connect with your kid in a new and interesting way. For sure. And that's why anytime I can, I try and involve the parents as well. And, you know, not not a lot of the parents that uh, have kids in my program, not a lot of them train. But definitely doing things like, for example, that playbook that we discussed where we take them home and the parents can kind of walk them through it and sort of see what's going to be expected of them. They can see not only how jujitsu works on a different level, but also they get the value out of it. They see, okay, like there I, I am getting a lot of value out of this on different levels, not just physically learning how to defend yourself, but also like life lessons and character development and things like that. As it goes on, like the, you know, into the green belts, like the concepts were pretty much the same concepts that I would teach adults. Again, it brings it all back to a healthy mix between conceptual, the techniques, but also the character development. And that is, you know, like you said, Steve, it's so uh, it's underappreciated, I think, in a lot of situations. And I think sometimes, (laughs) if I'm being totally honest, overappreciated. I think some schools totally focus on that and don't teach enough of actually how jujitsu works to kids. The longer I do this, the more I realize that the least important thing about jujitsu is the actual jujitsu. Jujitsu is just kind of this vehicle that lets you do all of these other really, really important things. I have a, a story, actually, I, Matt, you'll probably like this. So we've got a we've got a mutual acquaintance named Philippe, who's an instructor here in the Vancouver area. And I've got a coworker whose kid trains with Philippe and it's like an eight year old son. And so one day this dad, my coworker, is asking his son, hey, can you show me what you learned in jujitsu today? And his eight year old son double legged him and held him in side <laughs> control. <laughs> and the guy who was telling me at work. He was like, I couldn't get out. <laughs> I thought you were going to say wrist lock. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is Philippe. I know he's fond of those. Uh, that's that's cool. a funny. I have a really similar story to that where uh, a kid went home and I guess they're hanging out in their kitchen and his mom was like, oh, yeah, like, so what'd you learn at your, you know, basically your karate today type thing. He's like, uh, he's like, oh, like, let me show you. Like, I, I was on my back and I held the ankle and I put my foot on the hip and then I and he just tripod sweeps her right in the middle of the the, li- the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he stood up holding the ankle. But, but did he come up for his two? <laughs> yeah. Did yeah. he come up for his two? Exactly. You got to have that lever control. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I think this was a, just an unreal chat. I really enjoyed it, Cal. Thank you so much for your time. Are there any closing thoughts here before we tie this up? I think we, uh, we touched on a lot, so I really appreciate you guys having me on. This is a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Anything you want to plug before we tie it up? Uh, 
Oh, not so much, no. I mean, may- maybe in the future. Well, if if you want to give us money, you can go to patreon.com slash models. That's the best way for any of you to support the show. From there, as I think most of you know, we have a variety of different perks and benefits for patrons, including things like narrated roles. One of the things that I know Matt and I have been doing is getting footage from our patrons and providing concept-based feedback. It's been just a blast to do, and it's also been really valuable to them. So again, if this is something that you want to dig deeper into the mental model aspect of jujitsu, please do consider signing up at patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. Again, Kel, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'd love to have you back in the future. There's just so much you can talk about on this subject matter. And I think it's just such a valuable way to think when it comes to how you teach kids, because, you know, I think a lot of people might think, well, you know, teaching kids, that's not my job. That's not what I do. So how is this relevant to me? But I think one thing that came out of this episode is an understanding that, you know, kids are kind of like a just one specific example of very powerful techniques that you can apply in any area of life where it comes to instruction or leadership. So this was a super helpful chat for me, and I certainly hope it was for our listeners as well. So again, Cal, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. I got to say, this is one of my favorite chats that I think we've ever done. And uh, yeah, Cal, for sure, please come back. Let's do a part two because we really only started scratching the surface. This is a vast topic. I think a lot of instructors listening could get a lot of value out of it. And I've certainly got a lot of value out of it. And again, yeah, just to reiterate what Steve said, thanks again to the patrons for the support. Really appreciate it. And if you're in the Nanaimo area, if you're looking to get some world-class jujitsu as an adult or for your kids, please check out Island Top Team. Cal does a fantastic job with the kids. And of course, uh, do you teach adults as well, Cal? You do? I do. I teach the adults basically once every day. Right. So you get, so you also, Cal teaches adult classes. And of course, Rob is uh, sort of the, the mastermind behind the whole alignment concept. So uh, definitely check out Island Top Team in, if you're in Nanaimo. And thanks for listening, guys. And thank you, Cal, for being on the show. Thank you guys very much. That was a lot of fun. And I love talking about this stuff. So I'll happily come back on. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you again. Bye.